Okay, this is Live from the Table, the official podcast of New York's world famous Comedy Cellar. Coming at you on Sirius XM 99 Raw Dog and on the Laugh Button Podcast Network. Dan Natterman here with Noam Dorman, the owner of the world famous Comedy Cellar Comedy Club. Periel Ashenbrand, our producer, with us today. Alingon Mitra. Alingon, it's been a long time. He is a stand-up comic, a Comedy Cellar regular. Uh, he has been a writer on Adam Ruins Everything and The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. He's made appearances on Comedy Central and Conan O'Brien, Stephen Colbert, etc. Hello, Ilingon. We also have with us another guest all the way from the United Kingdom, Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at Burbeck College, University of London, and is the author of White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities, and it's probably as controversial as it sounds. He has also <laughs> written for the New York Times, Times of London, Newsweek, National Review, New Statesman, and other outlets. Eric Kaufman, welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's late over there where you are in London. We appreciate you staying up for us. Great. Well, thanks for having me. And I, I do apologize for not having a British accent since I'm Canadian, but that's okay. I've lived here for over 20, 25 years. The English accent is contagious, but apparently you are resistant to it. I recall Madonna living there for like a month and all the talking, like, you know, he's talking like Queen after just a couple of months. But, but you resisted. Yeah, I think the, the, the Northern Irish and Scottish ones are easier to acquire, but... Uh... Well, um, I guess everybody at their own pace. Noam, this is a guest that you, you were turned on to by our, our friend Coleman Hughes, who recommended him as a guest. Eric, you know Coleman, right? I do indeed, yes. I've had uh, some, some nice uh, lunches with him in New York. Um, so yeah, he's great. I love his work. So Eric and and Alingon, uh, you know, can, can you give us a, a, a quick overview of um, you have you have some thoughts about why America is coming apart and how it relates to uh, immigration and how it um, is a hostage to human nature and uh, where it it might go? You want to give us a little overview and then um, you know Alingon can can tear you apart. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm a sort of. I'm a political scientist. I work a lot with survey data uh, on public opinion. And one of the things you see uh, in the US case certainly is that uh, views on immigration were absolutely critical for predicting uh, who would support Trump in, in the Republican primary, as opposed to Cruz or, or uh, Kasich or others. And then also in terms of um, Obama voters and non-voters switching over to the Republicans in 2016, that issue uh, views on immigration was absolutely crucial. Um, and, and in Europe, we have, you know, if you look at the Brexit vote, you look at the vote for um, the Sweden Democrats, Marine Le Pen, et cetera. Again, immigration is absolutely the key issue for uh, the rise of the populist right. And I think Trump's reflecting that same dynamic that, that if you look at American public opinion, just white Americans, Democrats and Republicans were only about 10 points apart on uh, views on immigration in 2012. And by 2016, they're 50 points apart. And that pattern we've seen in other countries to a greater or lesser degree. So I think that issue is really key uh, for understanding why we're in the moment we're in. And, what, and why are we in the moment that we're in? Well, we're in a actually quite substantial period of ethno-demographic shifting across the West. And depending on how people are wired, and, and this is 50% heritable, you either see that as, as stimulating and interesting, or you see it as 
loss and as disorder. And it's the people who see it as loss and as disorder who are moving into voting populist right now. Uh, and that issue is going to be with us um, really for the rest of our lives. I would argue that's going to be a major factor. And so whenever what's happened now is there, there was a big increase in immigration, say in Britain and, and in Europe in, in, since about 2014. And that's been reflected in the rise in the number of people saying immigration is one of the most important issues facing my country. And when that rises, the support for the populist right rises. And it's been found in nine out of 10 Western countries in the last, just in a recent paper. So there's a very important link then between this kind of ethnic change, which unsettles people's idea of, of the country they live in, uh, of their own identities, but it only unsettles a part of the population who are for psychological reasons, uh, mainly not that, you know, they tend to see differences, disorder changes loss. So the big question is how we're going to deal with that part of the population in Western countries. So I, I have a series of questions and then um, yeah. and I don't want to, I don't want to dominate, but, but one of the things, that, uh, one of the things I, I always find myself thinking as kind of like a, uh, a first principles of all this, and I'm not clear on the answer is, is, is what feelings are we prepared to say are wholesome and acceptable and what feelings were you prepared to say are bigotry and racism so for instance when um black people complain that harlem is becoming gentrified and all of a sudden they find themselves living in a, in a white neighborhood we kind of say yeah i don't blame them for being pissed off right i say if, if i was moving here to, to america from russia and i decided to move to a russian neighborhood Nobody would say, boo, of course you are. I understand you want to move to a Russian neighborhood, but then all of a sudden, if my Russian neighborhood started turning Italian and I, and I didn't want that, you say, what are you, a bigot? I would say, well, it was okay when I moved to the Russian neighborhood. Now it's not okay that I want to keep it a Russian neighborhood. And I, and I think that we, I don't want to keep talking, but I think that we haven't really grappled with what sense of wanting to be around people like yourselves do we think is okay? And where does it cross the line into being evil? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got your finger on, on the key ethical or normative question because, you know, in surveys, it's really- I usually do, by the way, but go ahead. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because actually psychologists, they find, you know, that attachment to your in-group and dislike of the out-group are separate dispositions. In most cases, unless there's a direct clash, like being a Republican and a Democrat, yeah, the warmer you feel towards the Democrats, the cooler you feel towards the Republicans. But that's a zero-sum competition. It doesn't work that way for, say, feeling warmer. If you're white and you feel warmer towards white people, you don't feel cooler towards black people. It's unrelated. And so that's part of this issue. It's like saying, I'm, if I'm really attached to my family, do I hate the neighbor's family more? No, actually, there's no relationship there. Um, and so one of the questions is, you know, is it okay for an ethnic group or, or even a, a pan-ethnic racial group like white Americans or Hispanic Americans to feel an attachment to their group and perhaps to want to slow down change to a neighborhood or country, etc.? I think it's different when we're talking about stopping change entirely and, and sealing the borders. And, you know, that is clearly an exclusive orientation. But if you if you talk about what's the rate of change, you know, it tends to be that if you say I want slower change, you're put into the closed box and there's the open people and the closed people. It's kind of very black and white. And what I'm sort of saying is we've got to move to a place where there's faster and slower, not just open, closed. And you've got to be tolerant that 
of some people who want things to be a bit slower and you have to be able to find an accommodation point. Why are you drawing change. a line between slow change and no change? Slow change you seem to see, you seem to be saying is okay to want slow change, but when we but, get into no change at all, you say that's not okay. Why, why that distinction? Well, no change would be sort of associated with a, with a sort of irrational fear of foreigners and a desire for purity and essentialism, you know. So that is sort of, that's where it comes into racism or some kind of xenophobia. Whereas if we're just talking about slower change because of attachment to the way things are, um, not freezing it in, in stone, but sort of an attachment and, and where you're willing to tolerate differences uh, but you, you want to be able to govern the pace of increase in that diversity. I think that is a conversation we have to be able to have. I don't think we are able to have it now in many circles where you are immediately tagged as a, a kind of bigot if you aren't one of, in the open group that more or less doesn't believe in. So hold, hold, hold that uh, free speech uh, issue for a second. Yeah. That is one of the things I want to get to. But Alingan, uh, you being uh, the only... Um, well, yeah, it used to be that Jews were fitness description, but I guess we've been declassified. So being the only, be the only brown person and non-white person, uh, just is, what, what are you thinking while you're hearing him say this stuff? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple things that I have questions about. I, I, one of the things was the idea of being wired uh, to want this or not want this, that I guess I'd have to find out what this data is because it seems like something that you wouldn't be wired to be something that you would learn. And if it's learnable, then it's something that you could change. Um, and then the other thing is when you're talking about being, if you're against it entirely, that's irrational. But if it's slow, that is rational. I still feel like I'm not sure how one part of it is, becomes rational if you're just like, okay, well, I'm okay with it, but you gotta go slow versus I'm not okay with it at all. Why is that one now a rational uh, choice? Okay. okay, Eric? Yeah, I mean, really good questions. I mean, I, I think that the, the wiring, okay, so this is, there's a literature in psychology on something called right-wing authoritarianism. Um, this is a disposition, again, as I mentioned, that sees um, differences disorder in a way. Um, and they, they've done twin studies that can show you that that essentially in, in twins that are separated or, or, or half-related. Uh, you can see this How relationship. Many, they always do these twin studies where they're separated. How many are there in the world? Where they're <laughs> the right. Significant numbers, significant numbers. Yeah, minute, yeah, we, yeah. Had, we had um, Nancy Siegel. We had Nancy Siegel from NYU. She did, was involved in the Minnesota twin studies. There, there's quite a significant number of them. Uh, go ahead. Well, they, yeah, might but use even, twins. they might use the same twins for every study, you know, just like they use the same community <laughs> for every TV show. Go ahead, Eric, go ahead. But you can even see, for example, people's view, you know, how messy is your desk? Um, do you believe in a dress code for tennis tournament? Things which you wouldn't think of as being related uh, actually are very much related to something like, do you want more immigration or less immigration? Things you wouldn't believe are actually, so this is tapping into those underlying uh, dimensions of psychology, which are, are sort of very stable dispositions. So this is not something actually that you can teach out of people. And, and this is a point that Karen Stenner, the psychologist in her book, The Authoritarian Dynamic, which Jonathan Haidt talks about quite a bit. And Jonathan Haidt himself, I mean, preferences for messy dots on a screen versus orderly dots on a screen. And that's very, at a very basic level of disposition. And these things matter because you then start to select environments that 
um, tend to reinforce those dispositions. And so you get people sort of becoming quite different. So I, I would sort of say that I don't think this sort of view that this can be educated out of people is likely to work. And in fact, what Stenner says is if you try and do that, you actually can make things worse. Uh, people react. There have been some experiments that can show that people actually have a reactive effect to that kind of messaging. Um, and actually, there are ways you can message to try and get. So, so, for example, if we're talking about immigration, if you tell people that, well, immigrants are coming in, but things aren't changing very much, your country's not really, they're just being absorbed as they have in the past. Actually, that works very well with this kind of segment of the population. Whereas if you say, we're getting more and more diverse, things are changing, ain't that great, that goes down really badly. So, well, it's part, yeah, go ahead. Also, I would say, Lingon, and, and Eric, you correct me if, if I'm out to lunch here, but in general, humans get used to things in a particular pattern, whether it's really spicy food or, I mean, I mean, it seems weird to say, but like there was a time when Beethoven's music, they couldn't be comprehended by people who listened to it. If you woke up tomorrow and found that the entire world was now Hasidic Jews, that, that would be quite disconcerting to you in terms, of, in terms of everything that would have to change. But if gradually over 20 years, more and more Hasidic Jews moved into your life, obviously that would be quite a different outcome that you, you, you would get used to it. So at some point, and cultures are quite different, let's not kid ourselves. And um, I chose Hasid because they're both the, the most, uh, kind of the most out there. And also because I'm Jewish, I can kind of get away with bashing them without being called anti-Semitic. But they make a nice example because I wouldn't want to wake up in a Hasidic neighborhood. And I know a Lingon wouldn't have named, by the way, and they wouldn't want me. And, 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 but you know, if it happened gradually, you would imagine that not only would I get used to it, but also they would also change a little bit as they gradually were introduced and they would start to adapt other things. And this actually brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about is that assuming this is gonna happen, aren't we emphasizing the opposite of everything we would put on the drawing board for like, okay, if we're gonna make this multi-ethnic nation work, we're gonna to have to just get rid of this notion that cultural appropriation is a bad idea. And we're gonna to have to get rid of this idea that the most important thing about is, is your ethnicity. And we're gonna to have to go a little, you know, have a thicker skin about people talking about stuff because it, we, we are emphasizing everything that would make it almost impossible to live together. Am I wrong? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, I think some kind of notion of assimilation uh, and again, that gets to this idea of sort of celebrating the uh, inclusion and, and, and the idea that things aren't changing so fast. You know, you want to actually almost suggest that actually things aren't changing fast. Immigrants are coming in, being absorbed into an existing matrix, even if it's not actually happening quite that quickly. That's the message you probably want to emphasize, not to say we're getting more and more diverse and changing. And isn't that fantastic? I mean, that works with a small number of people. Uh, but it's not going to work with, with another part of the population. And this is partly what's behind the polarizing uh, politics. I mean, if you look across the West, increasingly um, parties are looking more and more similar on class, and they're more, looking more and more different in terms of culture, uh, in terms of cultural attitudes. And, and that's because of this psychological divide between the people who like difference and change and those who don't. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. We're kind of going about it the wrong way in many Western countries by emphasizing that difference all the time. What, what are the, 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 the tangible differences if, uh, in a society, in a Western society that becomes less uh, white, 
what, what is actually changing that one might react to other than fear of change? And we can understand fear of change, I suppose, but what, what's actually changing or what will change in a, in a society that's 50% Brown, say 50% East Indian, Hispanic and Black, how will we be a different country, if at all? Yeah, I mean, part of this also, I haven't talked as much about the second part of the book, which is about melting into that, you know, if the ethnic majority expands its boundaries, like in the US, it went from Protestant to white, you know, so Jews and Catholics became part of this sort of majority category. But, you know, going forward, you know, Michael Lynn talks about Beijing, so you'll get sort of people who've intermarried into this category becoming part of it. So you might actually get a multicolored majority melting pot emerging, right? So that's, that, but that's not going to happen in, in a serious way until the second part of the century. The question is what we do now before that has occurred. Um, yeah, I think when you have ethnic difference, which is people who have different collective memories, different myths of ancestry in terms of which communities they belong to, and possibly different culture, you're going to get these different identities and and it's well known there's a study of this globally that shows that where you have uh, more ethnic differences within a country there are some things that are harder like where do you build the hospital whose whose district you put it in uh, you know so there are these collective action problems that are thrown up by rising diversity and you know in the u.s case you had rising diversity in the early part of the 20th century Robert Putnam has a book on this, and then you actually had a decline in diversity as you had assimilation. Um, and, and actually you had arguably a higher social solidarity, but now we're back to where things were in the early 20th century. So the question is some kind of integration, not, assim not government assimilation, but these things happen organically, privately. Um, that probably needs to happen before some of these tensions start to reduce. Also, we, we have other problems in this country uh, that, and so I'm, I'm a child of immigrants, and um, there was a particular immigrant mentality that I grew up with that is quite different, I would say, than the immigrant mentality of uh, immigrants that I know, like who work for me. People I love, by the way. I'm not, this is not, um, I hope it, it's hard to express it without somebody thinking I'm criticizing. It just is what it is. So. My father came here at a time when, um, first of all, going from country to country was a tremendous thing, right? And it was no long distance. There was barely any mail. So when you, when you went somewhere else, that was it. And coming from Russia or Israel and winding up in America, you kissed the ground and you wrapped yourself in the flag and you would never utter a word. America was the savior and you appreciated every minute of it. You didn't care that they sang Christmas carols. You didn't care that there was a national Christmas tree. You, you, you didn't, you know, you, you. but now we have um, populations coming here who, who've grown up on an anti-American diet with anti-American mentalities who are also coming from uh, in, in ways that they have no particular um, obstacles to going right back or going back and forth or calling home all the time. So the, the, in many ways, it doesn't feel like they would naturally um, root to this country in the same way because, and I speak to immigrants who work for me, they're like, are you gonna stay here? I don't know, I might, I might go back, I might go back for a little while, you know. Uh, would you, would you um, want your kids to fight in a, you know, a war here? Oh no, I'd, I'd be out of here, you know, if there was a war, you know, and I don't blame them for any of these things, but it's just quite 
is just quite different. And then, and then finally, we've also decided that it's no longer appropriate for us to demand of the immigrant uh, the intention to assimilate. And I don't know how you feel about that or anybody in the panel feels about that. But again, I'm just saying that's the truth. We used to think it was very appropriate to tell an immigrant from a foreign country, well, you better learn to speak English and get your shit together and, and remember that George Washington is, is, uh, is you know, your, your, your founding father. And now we don't, we, we think it's almost bigotry to, to expect the immigrant to wrap themselves in our culture, in our traditions. All of this seems like a, a recipe for a lot of difficulties, really all I'm saying. My... Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't think the immigrants coming now are, are, are less necessarily that much different in terms of their willingness to, to assimilate. But I do think the dominant narrative um, coming from the elite is, is quite different. It's, it's sort of encouraging difference rather than uh, assimilation into a, a common entity. And so, so, yeah, I think that really is having a negative effect. I mean, I think what, what's interesting is, is you have this combination of the ethnic diversification. Layered on top of that, you have this ideology, which is very pro-diversity. And that, that sort of begins, it's got a long intellectual history, begins kind of in the early 20th century in America, but it really takes off post-1960s, gets into the institutions, the education system, and now is into high politics. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's really going to be a very challenging recipe when you aren't even, you don't even have a matrix into which you're trying to get the majority. Now, of course, people are allowed to, it's a free country, they can, if they don't want to assimilate, that's fine, there's no problem there, but you probably need a critical mass to be voluntarily doing that if you want to have a reasonable level of social solidarity. Um, but, but the other thing I, I point out though is I think the origin of the polarization is within the white population more than anything else. It is a kind of intra-white battle between kind of the, what I call left modernism, which is a sort of cultural left, and then the more traditional patriotic kind of, whereas, whereas I'm not sure that the immigrant, you know, the immigrant groups and non-white groups are sort of not on the sidelines, but they're not as implicated in this polarizing tendency that's really gripped in the last few decades. Oh, it's definitely the white people. What do you say, Olingan? I don't know. It seems it, it's dicey because I feel like you, you, once you start pushing that a little bit, where you're like, "Look, we gotta figure out a matrix to assimilate in," then you get to a point where people are saying, "Oh, you're not American because you aren't playing baseball or you aren't speaking English," and that's where it gets. I don't know. It starts getting a little prejudicial, even if the person's an American citizen. You're like, "Well, you're not doing." American things because you're not eating our food, so you're less of us now, which I don't, I think it, that, it, I, it, there's a nuance there, but I feel like people aren't gonna catch that nuance. They're just gonna grab it for what, what they want, which is I want my country to be the way it is. You're not doing it the way I want it, so you're not us. Well, you're right, Oling, and it, and it is dicey, and, and it is, and well, this is where, we, where, where I started off asking, Eric, it, it's, we are trying to, bring out the best parts of our human nature and find a way to, to control and contain the worst parts of our nature. And these issues activate both these things and in the same people at, at various times, you know? And, um, and I think that's why, in the end, why this idea of moving slowly is, is wise. Like, you know, the typical, typical recipe is uh, 
add ingredients and then stir and then you know and and we 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 need to stir there is this more um less easy to less easy to justify in moral terms but it's real and i i I'm, you know, you're afraid to bring things up in this day and age, but I just want to say there was, for people who are older, there was a time when um, there was a, a wave of immigrants and illegal immigrants. This was when Reagan was president. Reagan uh, um, gave amnesty to all the illegal legal immigrants at the time. And then people were promised, and now we're going to take this problem seriously, and this is not going to happen again. And a lot of these voters woke up 20, 30 years later and found that, wait a second, everything has drastically changed now. It's, it's five times worse than it was when they promised us it wouldn't happen worse from their point of view, uh, that when they promised us that this would be under control. And now I'm being asked to change my expectations of how I should live. And they resent it. And, um, you know, it, it, whether it's wrong or it's right, it's perfectly predictable, right? It's, it's perfectly predictable that a human being, we're all the same, black, white, or, or any color, would resent that. And we have to deal with that resentment in some way better than just saying, you're an asshole, shut up and take it, you know? <laughs> Which is, Eric, what do you say? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is an issue here around... Um, intolerance of people who who want to assimilate for example that is you know it's certainly in academia where i am the idea that you would look positively on somebody who wants to assimilate doesn't really exist it's just not in the high culture whereas someone who wants to retain their identity and traditions from another country that's seen as fantastic my view is retain if you want to retain that's i don't think we should look down on that i don't think the state should be forcing people to assimilate but what I have a problem with is the sort of reverse that, that someone who wants to voluntarily assimilate is, is kind of frowned upon. And, and so it's that. And similarly, when I think- well, Explain it. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Who's frowned upon for wanting to assimilate? Well, the idea of seeing assimilation as a positive thing, for example, it's kind of, I won't say it's a swear word in, in, in academia, but it, it is certainly close to that. No one is talking positively about assimilation. Voluntary, I'm saying. Um, but the other thing, too, is that this idea of exclusion, right? So if I say, let's take a phrase like, all accents are American accents, right? If you think about that, it's true. Anybody can be an American citizen and ha have any accent. So on one, one level, absolutely all accents are American accents. But on another level, that's a nonsensical phrase. Clearly, there are British accents and French accents and American accents. And that distinction of that part of what makes the U.S. distinctive are these everyday particularities like the way people speak English. Uh, that doesn't mean everyone must speak that way to be considered an equal American. We have to be able to kind of juggle both things at once. We want to ret retain traditions, but at the same time be open-minded enough to allow for difference. I think that balance is being lost. It's now all on the different side. If you mention any of this traditional stuff, then you are seen as anti the difference. No, you can actually be okay with tolerating difference and accepting somebody as equal, but at the same time, want to conserve and preserve certain traditions with make, which make your country distinctive, such as the American accent. Let's say that uh, people didn't assimilate. There was a lot of immigration, there was no assimilation. How would that affect somebody 
who chose to live within, the, how would that negatively affect somebody that's an American of, has been here for several generations? Why would they care if there's a neighborhood in which people don't speak English very well and have a weird accent? Which, and, and there are such neighborhoods, by the way. Right. You know, and how, that doesn't affect me directly. How would that, on a macro level, affect people, you know, uh, well, it all gets, population, yeah. yeah, well, it all gets back to that sort of distinction between people who, who like difference and change and those who, who dislike them. They're actually separate dispositions. The change part and the difference part are separate. They're not exactly the same. But so for somebody um, who tends to prefer order, for example, a more homogenous environment, they would tend to see that, experience it negatively. Someone else might see it as stimulating and interesting. Both exist, and we have to deal with both. But is it possible for some people to live in homogeneous environments? I could certainly move to parts of the United States that are very homogeneous, and and let New York be New York, and let Idaho, which I assume is mostly, I don't know this for sure, but I assume is mostly European uh, ancestry people, right. let them be them, and we can live in separate, we can live where we want to live. I mean, at what point does, does the, the, the changing culture be, or the, you know, affect the people in Idaho? Or affect the people in Montana. And well, it right. So it affects it insofar as they may not feel in as much of an identity with the diverse places. So they may see them those diverse places as fundamentally different, having fundamentally different interests, and therefore it's harder to have a national common national identity. Now, I actually think there has to become a a tolerance on both sides. So there has to be an acceptance that there are cosmopolitan places, there are homogenous places. Neither one of them is sinful because it's diverse or cosmopolitan on the one hand or homogeneously white on the other it doesn't make it a better or worse place so i think that tolerance has to happen but we do know for example that you know worldwide it is just more difficult to to achieve in terms of say economic development you know more what's called ethnically fractionalized diverse societies tend to have slower economic development not mainly because public goods such as uh, government welfare and, and uh, garbage collection and hospital provision and policing and all these sorts of things are just more difficult when you have these differences. So, and politics tends to run more on ethnic lines. Parties tend to be dominated more by single ethnic groups rather than by say liberal and conservative. So there are a whole bunch of reasons why it's just more challenging, but it's, it's incorrect to say such societies are all gonna collapse into chaos. No, they're not. I mean, there's a lot of successful very polyethnic societies like Mauritius, for example, in Switzerland. Uh, so it's not, but, but on the other hand, it's just harder. Uh, and it's maybe, in my view, probably better to have kind of this melting pot assimilating majority, which is not the whole country, and then minorities who maintain their culture, and that's fine. Um, but I think if that melting pot kind of majority shrinks and becomes a smaller share and you've got multiple poles, it's just, it's just harder. Politics is more likely to take on an ethnic form. What about this thought? Suppose the those who are against immigration because they believe that immigrants will change the culture and won't assimilate, suppose they're dead wrong and they're probably at least half wrong, okay? But suppose they're 100% wrong. Do they still have the right, if, if they, do they, are they worthy of condemnation? Have they, do they have the right to be wrong and guide policy? In other words, if a majority of my fellow Americans don't want immigration, whatever the reason, they're a majority. And I feel like I have to be like, okay, 
If you don't want immigration, that's your choice to make. I might disagree with it, but I, I, I'm not going to say you're evil and that we're going to overrule your decision. I mean, I don't know if you, you know where I'm getting, I'm, what, well, what I'm saying is like, to what extent do, does, does a country have a right to say for any reason they choose that they're going to reduce immigration? Well, yeah, I mean, I, like I have a right not to invite a lingon to my dinner party because I just don't <laughs> like a lingon. And I don't even have I've good reason. I've never been invited to a dinner party. I don't have dinner parties. My apartment's too small and, and it's not very nice. But the point <laughs> is, whatever the reason, that 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 the majority that a majority of our population wants to reduce immigration, that is that is that their choice, or should we fight that choice and say no? You try to force them to think uh, in another way. Well, I, I think you can, when you say force, I think you could certainly make an argument and say, well, look, do we not owe a debt to people in other parts of the world? By all means, try and convince. But in a democracy, I do think that you, the problem has been that there's been an attempt to take this issue off the table by associating it, anyone who wants less, with being a bigot. And what that does is essentially shutting down, narrowing the acceptable space of debate. What you're doing, it's a bit like the Soviet Union, I explained, you kind of, you're only gonna sell one color of pair of pants. And so if someone wants blue jeans or something different, where are they gonna go? They can't go to the main political parties because they're not selling that. And so they're gonna to go to a black marketeer, which in, might be a Trump, it might be a Le Pen, somebody who is willing to break the taboo and offer people what they're not getting from the mainstream parties. Now, you don't, obviously you don't always wanna offer what people aren't getting from the mainstream parties. George Wallace offered segregation. You have to draw lines, but the question is, you have to have a good reason for drawing the lines. And I don't think tarring anybody who wants less immigration with the racism brush was a le justifiable, legitimate reason. And so all you did is you created a Trump by not allowing mainstream parties to address it responsibly. Um, and, and so there are dangers in trying to shut these things, these conversations down. But are, are they racist though? Like if, I'm, if I want my country to be white, because I'm, I'm white, and I'm like, okay, I'm okay with somebody from Russia coming, but I'm not okay with somebody from China coming. Whereas the guy from China may have more similarities to me than the guy from Russia. It's just a, how he looks is the way I look. I'm okay with that. Is that not racist? Like, is that not something we should be saying is a racist policy? Well, I think if you're trying to, to keep your, you maintain some kind of a racially homogenous ethnostate, then that is racism because um, you have this, pure, this notion of purity and essentialism which is irrational and dangerous. And then where does that stop? You're gonna start purifying in, in what way, right? So th there, there is definitely a, you know, we, we wanna clearly condemn that, but, it, but when I'm talking, what I'm talking about is slowing down the rate of change. It's, it's, a, it's a, a view that says we're gonna have immigration and, and we're gonna have intermarriage and interracial marriage and mixing. So clearly that's not the same thing as saying we wanna have some kind of pure race thing. Uh, but people tend to collapse both those positions into one. That is, you don't want change, you're, you're not open, you're a bigot, and you're the same as Richard Spencer. Well, we have to be able to be more nuanced than that. We have to be able to say, yeah, there's some people who want slower change, some want faster, we're gonna have to meet in the middle. We can't be so absolute and reactive to the people who want slower change. And, and also, can, can I say something here? Because it's, it's really, 
it's really complicated and it's it's <laughs> it's depressing actually because I mean as as Alingon says that you know I would say yeah that does sound like racism to me. At the same time, my first thought was, but you know the people who are supposedly pro-immigrant and calling people who are not racist. If you listen to stuff they talk about, they seem even more racist to me. All I ever hear from that side of the of the of the ideological spectrum is of is anti is bashing whiteness, bashing white males, uh, um, all sorts of identity identity politics. I mean, strongly strongly identifying everything in the world on the basis of race. And then, if God forbid, a white person like we're creating. I mean. People should understand. I have no affinity towards white people. It's only like a few years ago that, I mean, people forgot the fact that the people, the, the white nationalists hate Jews first, you know? Now they're kind of lumping in. But I'm just saying, I, I have no affinity for them whatsoever. But I feel like if we keep telling them that we view them as white, at some point they're going to say, that's right. We're, we're, you're, why are you getting mad at us for saying about ourselves the very same thing you've been telling us every day that we are? So it's almost like we're creating a white race. We're normalizing every day, even in a subtle thing like calling people Karens and everything like this. We are normalizing all the concepts that we should be trying to root out and destroy if we're going to be a melting, a melting pot society, multi-ethnic society. Go ahead. And no. I have something else to add after that. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I think I think we need to also distinguish between a kind of normal, you know, sense of ethnic identity, um, you know, or even racial identity. You can be Puerto Rican and Hispanic. You can be Irish and white. White is kind of the higher level. And in fact, in the research, what we find is people are strongest strongest attachment is to their ethnic ancestral identity, but if you are strongly attached to being Irish, you are much more strongly attached to being white. Or if you're much more attached to being Cuban, you're more attached to being Hispanic. The one is kind of just an, an outer layer. And, but the difference is, do you sort of, in expressing your Hispanicness or your whiteness, uh, are you doing that in opposition to somebody else? Like, I'm superior or I hate this other person? Or is it simply, no, I'm proud of the traditions that we hold, et cetera. Uh, and it's what Jonathan Haidt calls a common humanity version of identity as opposed to a common enemy version of identity. And what's going on now, I think, with the cultural left is they are encouraging minority groups to have a common enemy version of their identity as in, instead of a common humanity version of their identity. The minority groups don't want that pushed on them. They're actually quite content with being proud of their traditions, and they don't want this to be part of this people of color coalition that's going to somehow overthrow some power structure. And, and so what we're seeing is this is driven mainly by a kind of white cultural left Rather than, oh, we got some freezing going on. I, I think big tech, big tech had enough of our coffin. The, 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 the Atlantic cable's getting uh, too much salt in it. No, I, that's that's a very good point you, you you just made. It's true. A lot of this is driven more by the the, the far far left white people than it is by the the non-white people themselves. I, I that's been my experience too. It, the, the classic case is this Latinx thing where. Uh, right. only 1% or 1.5% one of all Latin people wanted to be called Latinx. And yet every liberal white person is on Twitter will use the phrase Latinx. And it goes to the New York Times it was, it's, it's, as if they changed the term for Jews 
to something that none of us Jews ever wanted or, or you know, and, and supposedly they did it out of respect for us. You know, it's kind of wacky. But here's another question. What if this hadn't happened with so much illegal immigration? What if it had happened um, out of need? Because it's always seemed to me that the people who need the illegal immigration, people who would be most pinched if all the illegal immigrants in the country were to disappear, are Republicans. They're the ones who need somebody to take care of their landscaping, follow their kids, uh, work in their businesses. I mean, who, I mean, Democrats, I, if I my, put on my cynical hat, they see, vo they see voters in immigrants and it also jibes with their kind of uh, tolerant worldview. But if, 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 if we had not been so porous, you would see the right calling upon the government to allow in more immigrants because we dreadfully need the labor. I mean, we terribly need the labor, right? But because it all poured in illegally, it allowed people to have their cake and eat it too. They can use the labor and still complain about it, which is what they do. They were never had to be on record demanding it because they needed it, right? Am I missing something there? Well, no, I think you're, you're right that a, a coalition, a part of the Republican Party, which is particularly agriculturalists, um, you know, people who own large, large farms in the Southwest and, and very rich people did want exactly what you talked about. But I think now the base of conservative parties like the Republicans has shifted and it's much more about that kind of populist middle class, working class. Uh, and a lot of the kind of wealthier uh, voters have moved into the Democrat, not a lot, but many of them have gone into the Democratic parties, particularly the last two elections. You see white wealthy voters shifting into the Democratic party. So um, you're right though, at one time, the parties, the party voters were very similar in their views on immigration for, for decades. And it's not really until the last, well, 2015, 2016, that you start to see a big gap opening up. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's Republicans, but I'd say it's elite country club, if you like Republicans who benefited. Well, but it's, it's small businesses too. I mean, I think that here, I've, I've been trying to be understanding to the non-immigrant side, but I want to say this. We have very little perspective on how much we benefit from immigration in this country. I mean, as a business owner, I will tell you, I mean, you could literally bring tears to my eyes. The immigrant workers, the labor is so far above the quality of native born. I'm telling you, I mean, like the, the Mexican employees that I have, you can't even comprehend how, how good they are. And I, I mean, I guess to say somebody's good is the same as saying someone else could be bad. So I guess I'm supposed to pretend that, no, that, that's not the case at all, that they're exactly the same as everybody else. But I'm telling you, it's, it's not the case. They are unbelievable and they are and immigrants in general are truly the backbone of everything we have an aging white population that is not going to do this work i mean when i was a kid the cab drivers were white the guys in the kitchen were white you know every, white people did all the jobs right that 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 doesn't exist anymore and like i said I, we have our cake and eat it too because we indulge our tribal you know get our tribal rocks off by complaining about all the illegal immigrants or, or legal immigrants but we really, really, we need a like, um, it's a wonderful life, the movie. We need it's a, an it's a wonderful life moment where there are no longer any immigrants and all of a sudden we realize, <laughs> holy shit, I had no idea. They were holding us all together all this time. And then you wake up and, you're, and you have a different outlook. You know, I don't know how to do that, but really people don't get it.
Yeah, well, I, th I mean, I think it's something similar here in Britain, you know, that it's a very similar story that, you know, immigrants work probably better for less money and, and therefore- but, No, stop, forget about the less money. For the same money. Or the same money. For the but, same money. For more money, they're still cheaper. I, I'm telling you, an immigrant making- <laughs> An immigrant making twice the wage is still cheaper than most non-immigrant workers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's probably right, but <laughs> but um, it's not. About, but the thing in this conversation is that you know there are economic benefits. I think that's absolutely right. I, I think it's a mistake to see this as an economic issue primarily. And, and if a lot of the academic research would suggest that when it comes to attitudes to immigration, it's mainly about these cultural psychological things and has very little to do with whether you are rich or poor or unemployed, uh, your views on immigration. Um, so yeah, I think, prob but, but I suppose what the restrictionists might say is, let's give it a try with lower numbers and see how it goes. And if we don't like it, we can go back to higher numbers. That to have that conversation is difficult when there are restrictions on what you can debate, what you can talk about, which policies you can camp politically campaign on. This is one of the reasons it might, let, it might be a good idea to have a period of lower numbers for a while, and then people might realize, actually, we've, we've thought about it, and maybe the trade-off, it's worth having more immigration, even if we have faster cultural change, which I might not like. I'm willing to make that trade. The other problem, of course, is that the people who benefit from the immigration tend to be the better off, uh, and it tends to be people who are less well-off who don't see those benefits. And they see the benefits in terms of lower prices for goods that they would have to pay more for. They don't necessarily appreciate that, um, but it, it benefits accrue more to the well-off. And we should remind everybody, it was very short while ago that people like Bernie Sanders mm. were the loudest voices against immigration. He, he filibustered the immigration bill that George Bush wanted to pass. So, you know, they, they, they pretend that this has been always their attitude, but it's, it's not at all. They're very much blowing the wind with what's uh, expedient now. By the way, do you, you get called a racist for this stuff? Well, there's always a group, I mean, it's only a small group on the sort of left that will tend to wheel that out uh, on many occasions. But I've been really pleasantly surprised, say, I mean, the center grounds, the mainstream newspapers in the US and Britain have generally been pretty favorable because they can see that, you know, the argument is one about slowing things down, having assimilation, um, and yeah, I mean, clearly they can see that the populists, you know, the populist right was surging from about 2014 through to about just when the COVID uh, pandemic hit. And I think after COVID, it's going to be right back with us. And so I think there's an, an awareness that there has to be an explanation for why this is happening. We have to come to grips with it somehow. So I think they were willing to listen uh, to some extent. But yeah, I mean, we know, of course, with political correctness and with wokeness, there's always that temp that group of people who are out there trying to paint everything as racist and, and end the debate and shut it down. Um, so so Lingan's not the only one to call well, you racist. <laughs> not yet, right. <laughs> you, Dan, you, say, you wanted a question, Dan, you had a question. Well, you, you sort of alluded to it. My, my question was, is, 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 is just to calm people down not reason enough to, to, to lessen immigration? And this goes back to my previous statement. If, if a, if a large portion of our country feels that strongly about lessening immigration, whether they're right or wrong about it, you know, is, is it not valid to compromise with them just to calm things down? Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, I th I, this is sort of my point is that to find an accommodation, like with economics, some people want more tax and spend, some want less tax and spend. People kind of accept that you kind of have a middle ground and they don't go ballistic when, when taxes aren't reduced or when they are increased. But, but Eric, yeah. I got to because and Dan's going to roll his eyes, we're always talking about, but really the left has to clean up its act here too. So for instance, uh, you can't you can't go blah 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 about uh, how dare you not want to take in um, non-white. Uh, how can you complain about uh, taking in non-white people from overseas? But as soon as they get here, when they apply to Harvard, we're going to make sure there's not too many Asians at Harvard. So this is this is the ultimate contradiction, in my opinion. To take them in. I don't care where they're from. But then once they get here, we have to treat them as as people. Period. With, at the at I don't see how we can be a successful multi-ethnic nation if we are going to bean count how many Asians we have at our universities. I just, I don't see that. If Harvard becomes 80% Indian and uh, Asian, South, South Asian and East Asian, I think we have to be prepared to say, we're very proud of our country now because actually we believe what we've been saying all this time. We don't care where they're from. God bless, God bless us that Harvard is 80% people of Asian. But if we're going to say, no, we have to keep it at 20%, then how, who are we kidding? We don't want to be a, a nation of immigrants. We don't. We just want to sound like we are. And then we want to do everything we can to prevent the successful immigrant populations from doing too well. Right? That's not, that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, I mean, it's this, the, the ideology really of essentially sacralizing minority groups and demonizing the majority and that tendency of sort of a very negative outlook to majorities and very positive to minorities then colors all of these debates right it colors you know you you want to enforce the border oh it must be white people disliking non-white people you want to have admissions it's got to be equity right because we want to have a racial mix that you know. so so i think the problem yeah this ideology of of essentially sacralizing uh, minority groups and essentially demonizing the majority. That's where we've got to. And, and this thing started a hundred years ago. And I talk about this in the book, you know, really back then it was uh, demonizing, you know, wasps de demonizing themselves, right? <laughs> Saying that, oh, you guys are, are so boring. You don't like, you, you don't like dancing. You, you want to ban alcohol. And that was the beginning of it. And it's slowly developed and become more and more the sensibility of, of the elite. And yeah, we have, I think, there has to be some reckoning with the excess of this left modernist ideology. We have to be able to dial it back or we're only going to be fueling uh, the kind of culture war polarization that we've got now. Yeah. Cause I'm actually quite an idealist. I would, I, you know, I, I would like to be, I, I like a diverse America. Mo, mo, most of my, I mean, I, I got tremendous pleasure as a musician at times and as a, as a, uh, as a, a dude who was trying to date women and, and you know, just, I can imagine like the first time I went to uh, uh, various cultures, learning from various cultures, musically, ethnic, uh, uh, cuisine wise, just experiencing it. I think these are all, I think it's all, it's all wonderful for America. I'm going to admit um, here, I'm probably the only one who doesn't know what sacralized means. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell what it means. I imagine it, you know what it means. You can I don't. Your context. Make it sacred. Yeah. Yeah. yeah make it sacred. Okay. So, so I'd never heard the word, but I guess yeah. you know from the context. And I want, and I, and then this is my last question. And I know, I know, Eric's got to go, but maybe you know, you, everybody get one last crack at him. 
Yeah. Where does, where, what is the typical African-American view on immigration here? Because one often associates the, the, the uh, people struggling to be mo more likely to be resentful of someone else coming in. Low skill, yeah. particularly. Well, I mean, I, I would say that they are, um, you know, they're not as restrictionist as, as whites are, but they're still a significant, you know, I think it might be 30% or 40% wanting lower numbers. What's interesting is that if you look at, you know, of course, Trump got a, a higher share of Latino and black voters and, and Asian voters than uh, for the last couple of elections. And it's very interesting to see that the views of those groups on immigration are very similar to white Trump voters um, and their views on political correctness are very similar. And so I think we've actually got a kind of multiracial coalition on a number of these issues, which is quite interesting. And I think that speaks also to this assimilation process. That's a, it is actually occurring, um, the assimilation process, and part of this increase in Latino and Asian support for the Republicans is reflecting that process. So that the, the cauldron is bubbling. So, I mean, let's be honest. If, if, it was, if it was an entirely white planet, <laughs> right. at, at a time when low-skilled jobs are leaving the country at a time when the, the ability to earn a decent middle-class family-supporting living on the, on the strength of your own back is disappearing. It's perfectly natural then that the country, big pockets of the country would be resistant to millions of competitive low-skilled workers coming in for a dwindling supply of jobs. And that is part of what we're seeing here. As, as low skilled labor, low skilled opportunities have evaporated, at, that's at the very time when low skilled workers are pouring in. And when the elite economists, including the Krugmans out there, can't tell you whether low skilled immigration is good for people, bad for people, creates jobs, loses jobs, they don't know. No. If the Nobel Prize winners don't know, then of course the average working Joe says, I don't want these fucking immigrants in here. I'm already struggling to hold on to this job at the, at the plant. And I don't know if the plant's going to even be here a year from now. So, you know, it's not all race, right? No, no, it isn't. But, but most of the, I mean, actually most of what drives immigration opinion is these kind of cultural and psychological dispositions, regardless of whether you are unemployed or working class. Class doesn't explain much. Uh, but I don't want to call it, it's not racism. It is, and this is the point, it's about attachment to rather than hatred and fear of much more. It's much more that attachment to the country you knew growing up. And I'm, I just think it's a misnomer to call out racism. It is a form of cultural attachment, perhaps parochialism, but I do think we're, the left is going to have to develop more of a tolerance for that kind of person, that that is a valid way to be. And by the way, I just want to say, there is a, a, a well-known sociologist who has a phrase, There's no, there are no cosmopolitans without locals. So the countries you like to visit, the, the authentic cultures you like to, to see in other countries are only there because somebody has invested in them and wants to preserve them in a way. And so it's kind of inconsistent to sort of say, ethnicity is great, keeping your traditions is great if you are exotic and a minority, but keeping your traditions is awful if you are white and a majority. I mean, it's just not a consistent. Yeah, ask position. the French. Ask the French. They'll, get, they'll, they'll tell you. Yeah. Alingan, uh, what, I, listen, I, I'm always, in, first of all, he went to Harvard, uh, Alingan. He's a stand -up comedian, but he went to Harvard, so he's quite bright. Right, but I failed. And, he, and he's, he didn't <laughs> fail. And um, 
and I and I never quite know where he is on these things. But but before Eric leaves, I want this. I'm going to turn it over to you to to get everything else that you're thinking about finished, and then we're going to let uh, Eric go if he wants to go. Go ahead, Alingon. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, I've I've got two. I guess like two questions. One is I think that you have a very nuanced take on it, and this idea of like, okay, it's it's just it's not we don't like those people. We just like this thing. We want to continue having this thing, and it's not about us hating these other things but i don't i don't know if this is true for the majority of the country the majority of the trump people who are coming out to those rallies and cheering when he's saying like the china flu right like or or whatever kind of dog whistling he was mm -hmm. doing at that point now maybe they're not representative of the country but we are seeing that and that's something i wonder about and the other thing i wonder about is when we say slow it down in actual terms, what does that mean? Like, right now, maybe we're more open than we were before, and there was a time when you couldn't marry a black person or you couldn't go to school with people who weren't uh, also, you know, black. Would we have at that point said, oh, slow it down because white people are uncomfortable with black people coming onto the bus the way they are now, you know? Like, at what point are we like, okay, we're bowing too much to these. Excellent question. And uh, the people did say slow it down then. What's your, what's your answer, Eric? Okay, well, yeah, just on the, on the Trump, you know, the people in the rallies are obviously true believers. And uh, yeah, I think you're probably right that some of them would have these negative outlooks. But certainly in the survey data, that if you look at white Trump voters, their warmth towards Latinos, African-Americans, they're reasonably warm, actually. It's not, they're not particularly cool. And... Do you white think Trump those voters surveys are accurate because we yeah yeah these are these are this is like the gold stand i mean the american national election study i mean you can look at a lot of the social scientific surveys but the one i'm talking about is the ANES the main us politics survey it measures warmth towards outgroup and that's really not correlated towards you know if you, white trump voters who are attached to being white are not anti black or anti hispanic more than whites who were not attached to being white so i actually think that is people have less to fear than they imagine, that, that the average white Trump voter is not that anti-minority. The other thing, in terms of the uh, looking ahead, you know, it's worth looking back on the U.S. historical experience when Jews and Italians and others, I mean, it really took the Southern and Eastern Europeans, you know, three, four generations for the ethnic neighborhoods to, to break up, the intermarriage between Catholic, Protestant, and Jew to happen. It took 70, 80 years, and I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we don't think it's going to take 70 or 80 years for the current waves to be similarly assimilated, and therefore, but it took an immigration pause for that to occur. Uh, can, and so can, can part I, of the argument is to, that we may need a slower period in order for this melting to occur. Eric, can I take a stab at Alingan's question? Right. Uh, so the slow it down is very interesting because for instance we we made a, a deal with the devil of slavery uh under the argument of slow it down and um you know we 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 decided to we would had enough of this or, or much of the country decided had enough of this when this in, during the civil rights movement and many people were then were, were arguing slow it down but the strife which was real which we had to endure as a nation we decided at that point uh, morally, it, it didn't matter because the, the price to pay and not doing it was too high. So slow it down um, sh is, shouldn't be uh, considered ridiculous because, yes, you, there are real difficulties and costs 
to not slowing things down. However, there's, you have to look at the other side of the moral equation. What's different here is that we don't have any particular obligation here to allow X number of people to come into the country. We're not, we're, we don't have the other side of, well, we have no right to let black people sit on the back of the bus, use different water fountains and go to different schools. We can say, slow it down and say, we haven't done anything to anybody. Nobody, you know, we, we don't, we're not obligated to just open up the United States of America. So I think that to slow it down, I think your question is excellent. And I think that maybe I'm, maybe I'm just finding a clever way around it, but I think that the, the other side of that equation is different here because we are not actively engaged in an absolutely immoral practice, which we're looking for an excuse to perpetuate by saying, slow it down. We're just saying, let's just go back to levels that we had 20 years ago of immigration, you know, and if that works out, we can pick up the pace again. That would be my answer. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point you make about, because there's a question of discrimination. Is discrimination always not permissible? And of course, in fact, we recognize that people are allowed to form associations that they want to form. So they can move to areas they want to move into, they can make friends with whoever they want to make friends with, join clubs they want to join. And this is part of what nations are. Um, they can decide who to admit, how fast to change. The relationship with the rest of the world is more like the relationship of a club or association to the rest of society. People are allowed to discriminate, make choices. The difference with civil rights is you, you're not allowed to discriminate if somebody, you know, you can't let a black person buy something from your bakery. That's not allowed because you're offering a public service and you're not treating people equally within your own society. It's a very different thing from whether you allow in more or fewer uh, immigrants vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, which is an associational problem and not uh, the same issue of discrimination as blacks sitting in the back of the bus. So, so they're problems of a different category and they shouldn't be collapsed into the same logic. Yeah. I know it's not necessarily the subtlest point, but it's... it's <laughs> no. All right. Um, so I, I guess we're, we're at an hour. You, you only agreed to stay with us for half an hour. I, I hope the reason you stayed was because you thought the conversation was not stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, I guess that's it, right, Periel? We're at an hour. We are we at an want, hour. Yeah, we did want to talk a bit about, uh, first of all, we haven't spoken to a Lingon in a while. Well, and, you want to talk about the Ted Alexandro thing, right? And about the Ted Alexandro okay. thing. So, okay. Eric, we're, we're going to open the door in case you'd like to leave. I'm very happy if you want to stay, but we're going to talk about a comedy shit now. All which, right. Which you might find interesting. So, but uh, I, if, you're tired, if you're tired, you won't, you won't uh, insult us, but if you feel like you're up, then hang out and join in if you... If you're interested, okay. go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Dan. Well, first of all, Alexandro. are you are you uh, aware of the Ted Alexandro uh, issue, controversy, conflict, whatever you want? No, to me? I, 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 I don't know. I know you are because I've sent you articles yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know what's going on. Well, Ted Alexandro has accused Saturday Night Live of stealing his joke. Ted Alexandro had a joke about um, he's older now and he um, he's not turned on by. Set, dirty talk so much as by talking about real estate and him and his wife it, it text i mean i'm not getting it perfectly correct but more or less that the uh the idea of the joke is that they talk about zillow ads that they see in zillow Ooh, a three bedroom hey you're a naughty girl you know Ooh, <laughs> you know that kind of thing where they're talking about real estate ads on zillow that that are exciting to them so saturday night live had a sketch and ted had done that on his special that he put on youtube maybe a year ago whenever it was so he's been doing that joke for a while Anyway, SNL had a 
whole sketch uh, this Saturday about uh, couples in their late 30s, um, at, at, you know, have, or people in their late 30s talking dirty about Zillow, basically, about, um, you know, getting off on beautiful homes that they see on Zillow. And um, you can, you can, I assume it's up on that, that, that um, sketch is up on YouTube. But anyway, Ted Alexandro has declared, declared rather unambiguously that Saturday Night Live stole the uh, joke from him. He's asked for a million dollars in compensation. I don't know if he's being serious or- That's tongue in cheek. He said, um, I'll give you 24 hours to Venmo me a million dollars. And he does have a petition uh, on change.com or change.org or whatever that was. I don't know if he put that up though. Did somebody else put that up? I don't up? know who, if he put it up or somebody else put I'll it up. I'll find it, go ahead. He's gotten a lot of press also, vice.com uh, and uh, tmz.com have talked about it. So so that's basically uh, all there is to say about that. So um, if anybody wants to jump in, I mean, I have my own thoughts, but- Hey, what's your thoughts, Dan? Well, let's, let, let's since I brought the topic up, I'll, let's hear, and we haven't heard from Alinga. Oh, Lingon, yeah, come on, go ahead, Lingon. What, what are your thoughts off the top of your head about this? So what does what what Ted want exactly? Well, he, he asked for a million dollars. Now, I think he was being tongue in cheek, but he wants the world to know that SNL stole his joke. Oh, so he actually thinks the writers knew of the joke and then use oh, that he's, as he's adamant. material. Yes, he's pretty uh, unambiguous in that. Um, and this is, this is the, um, he's got 536 signatures. It, that's, you know, sounds like a decent number of signatures. They're going um, up as they're going up as we talk. Five thirty nine. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So so that's his. Uh, it says on February six, an innocent man was robbed in front of millions of viewers across the nation. And um, comedian and national treasure Ted Alexander shared his unique content one fateful night in the infamous infamous comedy cellar. I don't know why it's infamous. People use that word well, incorrectly. They, they might. Be, the audience erupted with laughter as Mr. Alexander shared his sexualized tale of Zillow exchanges with his significant other. And uh, you can watch the SNL sketch, but it is. It is similar, you know, and it is Zillow. Um, I don't know if we bored uh, Eric, but he just walked. He could maybe he's wearing some tea. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's, it's a big topic. Comedian, oh, comedian, comedians steal, right? It happens. I, I'd have to look at the sketches, but if, if they're close enough uh, and Ted has some strong feeling that they took it from him, I mean, you're not supposed to steal. That's, that's a golden. Well, that, that's, no one's arguing that. Right. No that you're not supposed to steal. Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. Um, the question is, is, is it fair for him to say, and look, I, I did a joke. Does he know the writers? Like, why would he say, like, well, where's, where's his accusation coming from? He feels the jokes are similar enough, number one, and number two, that come, that SNL writers probably do go to the cellar. I mean, like, we know SNL writers and, you know, and people that are on SNL that are at the cellar. So it's certainly possible or that they saw him on YouTube. So Motive, so, opportunity. Motive and opportunity. <laughs> uh, so, so he's pretty categoric, is that a word? Yeah. Um, in terms of his accusation, he doesn't he'd seem to be allowing for the possibility, at least in terms of what he's saying on Twitter, he doesn't seem to be allowing for the possibility that it was a case of parallel thinking. So you haven't seen both sketches, but I don't know if you have any, well, comedians, as parallel thinking happens, right? Well, look, I had a joke. I had a joke that I did on America's Got Talent where I said, like, it's so easy to get a girl pregnant, to create a human being, but very, very difficult to put together a TV stand from Ikea. <laughs> and, and, and when I wrote that joke, when I knew that it wasn't the, the, greatest, the greatest joke or very rich. I said, I said to myself, somebody, somebody thought of this joke before. 
but you know, I need to I need to do corporate work and I need to do politically correct jokes that won't offend anybody. So but you didn't steal it. I certainly did not. But after, but somebody said on Twitter, oh, I, that was a good joke you did about uh, being it easy to make a kid. I liked it better when uh, Tommy Jonigan did it. Well, I, I don't think I've ever even seen Tommy Jonigan on stage. I've met him. I certainly didn't steal it from him, but I felt particularly violated by that accusation. And I think it's very dangerous to throw out these kinds of accusations, just like it's dangerous to accuse somebody of anything and get a mob behind you. Now, SNL can certainly defend themselves, but just like it's dangerous to, to accuse somebody of sexual impropriety without rock solid evidence and get a mob, a Twitter mob to rise up behind you, I think this is dangerous too. And I, I'm very, and, and by the way, I have a joke about how, I saw a commercial, the doctor says, ask your doctor about Prevacid. And my, my joke was, well, shouldn't your doctor know about Prevacid? How's that my job to ask my doctor about Prevacid? Now, I did that joke 10 years ago, at least 10 years. I'm embarrassed to say because it's so old and I still do it. But apparently, on a recent special, uh, Ellen DeGeneres had a very similar joke. And I never said she stole it. I said, we do a similar joke worth looking into. Maybe she took it. Maybe she didn't. I would have never said, never dreamed of saying, she stole it. Give me money. Now, may, maybe this is different. Well, you know, and, if and if it's different, why is it different? And I, and I hesitate to say any of this because as a comic, you know, comics rally around other comics. And I, and I feel like I should rally behind Ted. But I feel it's dishonest to do so because I feel like it's very, very possible SNL took the joke. Absolutely. Maybe well, Dan, 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 let me ask you this. It's possible that they didn't. Dan, let me ask you this. First of all, I want to say... Uh, Michael Che is head writer at um, uh, SNL, and I would be uh, fucking, I find it absolutely impossible, absolutely impossible to believe that Michael Che would, would knowingly do something like that. And I know that Ted actually, I happen to know Ted, Ted actually agrees that this was beyond the scope of what anybody could see somebody like Michael Che doing. Now then the question is, from Ted's point of view though, he says, well, there's a number of people in that writer's room. Mm -hmm. And... Um, what are the odds that none of these people saw this joke that I do? And it's a, it's a particularly unique joke, right? About Zillow. Well, Zillow, Zillow is a unique aspect. Yes, yes. Zillow is a unique aspect. Which is not as, as ubiquitous as jokes about getting girls pregnant. You know what I mean? Like, but, but, but I will say that I've heard a lot of jokes in my comedy career about uh, getting uh, turned on by things that are not sexual, especially as one gets older. But then we've seen lots of other smoking gun looking cases of uh, things being stolen. I don't want to go into them. I don't want to say them out loud because I don't know the merits of any of them. But suffice it to say, there are many skits out there. On SNL? Which, uh, and SNL and other shows which resemble various people's stand-up jokes, you know, and have been accused of stealing. And, and there's... There's no doubt that some of them were stolen, and there's also no doubt that some of them were not stolen and were parallel thinking. So in any particular instance, how do you know? You don't know. Ted, does, Ted doesn't know. He said as much that he doesn't know. Um, he, just, he just suspects it. That's, okay, so what's the proper course of action? Like, I feel like we, we, we are pretty precious about our material, and we think that everybody has heard all our jokes. But I, I literally posted jokes online uh, where people who are my friends are like, oh, that was a great joke. I, I'm glad you posted it. I've never heard it before. And I, and I did it like on Conan years ago. Like they're, then they're my friends. 
so I I think sometimes we think everybody's heard our jokes and knows them, but I we're we're not. Well, do you think their point? Alina, do you think that a joke about Zillow is so specific that that the the burden of proof is on SNL to prove their innocence? I'd have to I'd have to see like where they took it. If it if there's a lot of parallelism, but if it's just Zillow, I could see that coming out of just like a couple looking at Zillow stuff and getting excited, and then somebody thinking, "Oh, I'm gonna heighten this and do a sketch." I don't think that that is unreasonable for somebody to independently come out and think. Uh, I'm sure, I, but if if Ted, the way he's talking dirty and the things they're they're doing is very similar to what's going on there, then I could get a little bit more behind it. But just the idea of a Zillow sexual joke. Uh, well, no. He, what's a proper course of action for Ted? I mean, it is possible that Ted was. He can't, he, can't, he can't prove that. He can't prove it, but is there a course of action he should follow to get some kind of redress? I, I would tend to think that uh, Ted is getting the redress that he wants out of this already, which is he's getting a lot of attention. A lot of people are, are seeing his joke now and comparing the SNL joke. Everybody's talking about him. This is all very good. And I don't mean this in a cynical way. I mean, this is, this is you know, this is better for him probably than the... Three hundred dollars they would have paid him for the Zillow joke, right? It's it's a it's a big thing in the comedy community. I think Ted is one of the finest and um, most original comics out there. I'm a big fan of him, um, and I and I you know I hope this helps him get to a wider audience. I mean, it's just one joke. How much money you know? What do you made from that? Well, what is your spider What does your spider sense tell you in terms of whether there was theft? Or do you have I any? Have, I have no idea whatsoever. Well, can we see? Can we see? He posted it on Twitter. Can we see that, Noam? Yeah, we can. You want me to play the clip? Yeah, go ahead. Please do. Please say he, he posted on Twitter uh, the back to back comparison. Okay. Ariel's really good with tech stuff, so this will just take a second. You know what? I haven't said a word this whole show, and I don't need to start getting shit now. Alingo, do you have to leave at 6.30, by the way? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll be done by that. I would like you to see this clip and, and weigh in. Okay, go ahead, Perry. And roll them. <laughs> <laughs> Noah, maybe you can put this up for us. What am I looking for? Tell Alexandro. Okay, I think he did it on, on Twitter is where he did it. Yeah, but we can't. It's too. I'm trying to make it so I could make it full screen. Oh, that's, that's good. That's it. That's it. That's going to be challenging. Okay, I got it. I got it. Okay, let Noam handle it. <laughs> that guy. Hold on. Let me just uh, share my screen. I'll do it. <laughs> um, oh, wait, wait. I, I got it. I'm sorry. Periel, don't get mad, but I, 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 you have to say share audio before you do it. Okay. I did it. No, I, I didn't. That's it. Okay, can you see it? I was saying, I can okay, see it. Okay, I'm going to play it. She and I do not sex one another. Uh, no judgment if you do. Uh, we just don't sex. Uh, what we do is we send one another properties on Zillow or Trulia. <laughs> That's like our dirty talk. Are you bored? Mm-hmm. Looking for something to spice up your life? Oh, yeah. Three bedrooms, two bathrooms. You are a bad girl. <laughs> the guest house has its own little kitchen. Oh. 800,000? You are nasty. <laughs> Who likes a big backyard? Who likes a big backyard? Zilla. Zilla. Zilla.
She and I do not okay, so sex. So that's about it, right? Is there any more to it than that? Well, that's all. That's all. That's all he posted. Well, that's all he posted. So let's assume. I think there's a legal principle that assumes that there's some legal principle that you just you go with whatever is there. Anyway, <laughs> we'll assume we'll assume that's all there is, and we'll base it on that. And let's go around the uh, room. Uh, Perrion, what are your impressions? It's dicey. Alingan, would you like to lose Ted as a friend? Go ahead. What are your impressions? What, 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 <laughs> no, I mean, I, what do you I, mean it's dicey? I think that if, if it wasn't stolen, it's, I mean, it's very, it's very questionable. I mean, that's like a very specific joke. Um, and I don't, I, I, I it's, um, I, I think I'm, you know, I err on the side that, Somebody um, probably heard Ted's joke before they got involved in contributing to that skit. Okay, one vote for stolen. Alingon. One vote for stolen. Alingon, you say what? Uh, I don't think it's it, you can't. You can't you, I wouldn't convict on that. Uh, that that's not enough for me. I would think I agree. Them? I mean, what's would that? You, would you give them a fine? That's a conviction. You can't. Well, it's, a civil, oh. it's a civil. It's a civil. It's a civil. Uh, preponderance of the evidence versus a reasonable doubt here. Yeah. I I also think it's when you slice up comedy like that and put it back to back. You could do that with a lot of bits, and it starts feeling like oh, that's something that definitely matches what just happened, just because of the visual of it. And again, like I think I, I agree with Noam. I think Ted is very inventive, very uh, skilled comedian. Like I I admire his work a, a lot. I don't know if what I'm seeing there is enough for me to say that this is something that was clearly stolen. It's, it's clearly not enough to say that it's clearly stolen, in my opinion. What, what do you say, Dan? Well, what, what would you give it a percentage? A percentage of what? Well, like I'm how? asking Noam if he would give it a percentage. Like, what is the percent chance yeah. that it was stolen? Now, let's, before I answer that, how much credit do you give to this? thing that people say, well, he, it was, he heard it, but he doesn't realize that he heard it. It was just, you know, well, that's what I said. I think that, that, happens, I think I that, think that happens a lot. Does it really though? That sounds yeah. like a- I don't, yeah, I do. I mean, there I don't know. times when I was, I would start singing a song and then, and it's like playing in the background. I didn't even realize it was playing in the background. I think it happens a lot now, especially because comics have to like churn out material so much faster. Like back when you had the same set and you do it for, years you know it wasn't as common but now when you're trying to like create material every day yeah i think some of that stuff just kind of sometimes is in the I ether mean, and you, do you think a comedian could rationalize themselves well yeah that's kind of his premise but there's not a single line and this is a skit there's not a single line directly borrowed the only the only thing that's borrowed is the fact that it's kind of sexy to you know to talk about zillow so i so i can do it so it's okay if I do. I, I would not accept that justification. I mean, in other words, I think if it was, if it was, if but it is a justification people are capable of making for themselves. It, oh, it certainly is. Yes, but I, I would not accept that justification. Uh, no, to me, if if the person that wrote that skit had seen Ted do it, then I would convict. I would say it is a it is a violation, and Ted should, Ted should be remunerated or something. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I don't think it's different enough. If if the if the writer of the sketch saw Ted do it, I mean, I I told I, the story. Before, I told the story before, and I I told it to Perry all the other day. So one time, I wish I could remember the joke. My memory's so terrible. But one time, I 
I came upstairs uh, from, might have, from, I came from around the corner from the underground and I came to the comedian table and something was going on in the news and uh, Chris Rock was at the table and I made a joke about whatever was going on in the news. It had to do with Obama, so I don't remember. And everybody at the table got silent. It was weird and they looked at me and they said, Chris just said the same thing. And I said, genius, you know, like I, I, yeah. I, like I was just, but the point was I had never heard him say, it. he just said it, that incident had happened that day. I hadn't been anywhere near the room, but I did kind of come up with the same joke that Chris Rock had come up with. So these things do definitely happen, you know, that where people come up with the same joke, even something, you know, that's not uh, a tried and true premise you know, or, or subject. So, so are you ready to give it a percentage given having said all that? Uh, I would say that the uniqueness of the Zillow, the sexy Zillow uniqueness is above the average uh, um, level of uh, concordance. So I would, I would have to go close to a 48%. I'm going to give it 48% stolen. Stolen or in the ether, because it is quite a unique premise, you know. You know, you yeah. You're still only giving. You're still saying the preponderance of the evidence is that they did not steal it. Yeah, you. I think that you you have to have something more than that to say that you believe somebody stole something because we know, you know, the presumption has to be that you didn't. I would give it about what you give it. I would give it about fifty fifty that they stole it. I, the reason I give it 50 is because A, Zillow is a specific, by the way, I'd never heard of Zillow until, but I guess it's pretty common. So I don't know how common Zillow is, but I guess it's common enough that SNL put it out there. Um, because, and also because Ted is in the New York scene and SNL and we, the writers do come to the cellar. And so th that's the reason I would give it 50%. The reason I would say 50% that it wasn't stolen is because again, I say, I've heard over the years, this theme of being people, you know, I, for example, I've heard women talk about, oh, you know, to be good phone sex for women is, you know, talking dirty to a woman would be like, where a guy says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, come meet your parents. Oh, oh my God, you're turning me on. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to call you the next day. You know, that kind of thing. The idea of being turned on by things that aren't sexual and that being the joke. But I'm going to tell you what else. It's kind of a tried and true uh, lingon, am I right? I mean, that's sort of a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that joke all the time. No, I'm, I'm serious. Have you heard jokes? No, no, absolutely. That it is a premise of yeah, it's things an idea. Being sexual now, that aren't, sexual stuff that things that aren't sexual, but that turn you on. Yeah, yeah. So not that you can't do it because you know a lot of shit I do. There's similar things have been done, but but that leads me to believe that SNL might not have stolen it. So I give SNL fifty percent for that. Now, so, so it's 50, 50, 50, 50. I'm going to tell you what SNL should do. Mm -hmm. They should actually steal. Louis C.K.'s bit where he brought Dane Cook on his show and they had it out about the fact that Dane Cook was stealing Louis's material. Remember that on the Louis show? And, yes. they, and, he, and he, Louis wrote it into the script where Louis and Dane actually had it out about the fact that Dane was stealing his material. It would be very gracious and could be funny if SNL would find a way to bring Ted on the show and address this issue in a funny way, which would make, would make it up to Ted in that way, it would make themselves look good. It was it was very winning when Louis did that. I thought. Yeah, I think they should do something That's nice for Ted, even if, even if they didn't steal it from Ted. For God's sakes, Ted Bits has been around as long as I have. Give the man something. Lord knows he deserves a bone. I certainly do. Uh, but, <laughs> but we're not talking about me right now. We're talking about Ted. And Ted, is, and, Ted and as opposed to you, Ted is quite beloved. I think. I mean, <laughs> everybody, no, he really is. I mean, Ted is. 
Ted is just a gentleman. He's nice. He's simpatico. You know, every, everybody likes Ted. So Also, Ted has defended comedians in the past. He's taken us up at, and we're grateful to him for it. That's why I say I was very tentative. I didn't want to, I feel like I owe it to Ted to say, absolutely, they stole it. Give the man his money. But I didn't want to be dishonest. That's not how I feel. I feel it's a 50-50 chance. And but I also Ted even said that. Ted even said in his video. I don't know that he said to video. Yeah, he put no. up a video at today that was like eight minutes long that he said, this is my press conference. It was actually really funny. Okay, so what did he say? He said he, he's not sure that it was stolen. He thinks it, but it might not have been. He, 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 was, he okay. was not arrogant okay. about it. He, okay. he, he left the door wide open to the fact that it might not have been stolen. I thought he handled it very well. It's on Instagram. I'm not going to play that now. But you go to Ted, Ted Alexander's Instagram, it's up there. And you can okay, so then I guess Ted and I are on the same page in, in that respect. But I agree 100% that SNL should give a man a writing job. I mean, if, assuming he wants one. Not everybody wants to sit in a writer's room for 15 hours a day. I know. Well, he, said, he said he didn't. He said, I don't want to be on that shitty show. I think that was a direct quote. <laughs> what he said was, you know, his politics are such that like his work is up for free on YouTube and he's very happy to do that. And he's glad that um, people can see, I don't know if he called it art, but you know, hit that for free. And um he hopes that more people will see his special this way. Well, that, that, that will be, he will get that out of this, you know. Alinga, and it's true, I mean, he's, a, he's brilliant. So, you know, and I think I do, I agree with Noam the way that I think he's handled this um, has been really smart and funny. And um, there's something really charming about it also. Well, maybe I should have been more aggressive with uh, Helen Ellen DeGeneres, but uh, she's not as high profile as SNL. All right, you've, I, had, you've had writing jobs. I mean, they, they don't sound fun to me, but uh, no, they they can be. But uh, I I do I could see, I could see something like this just being in the ether and seeping into somebody's brain and and turning into a sketch. But if they were actively doing it, of, of like, oh, this is a this is a funny idea. Let me see if I can build it out. Then yeah, that's uh, well, SNL is a pressure cooker. They're under a lot of pressure to come People up with a lot of stuff. It's certainly possible. That it's, it is certainly possible. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't rule it out, and I, did, I stand with my 50-50 uh, assessment. We know, I know lots of cases of things that have been stolen. I, I, I saw one, I was in Vegas. I saw, I saw somebody pull out a Greg Rogel joke, his whole letter to Santa Claus thing. I mean, word for word, the, the guy stole it from Rogel. That's unbelievable. Although uh, when I was in my 20s and I moved to LA and I was trying to get writing, comedy writing jobs on TV shows, we would submit these like scripts on spec and I categorically had verbatim things stolen from those. So, you know. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I could show you the scripts. I mean, they were really specific shit that, like, you then saw on television shows. <laughs> all the action, is, all the action is, the all the action thing. is in our heads right now. All right. You know, I hang up the whole thing. Lingon, uh, do you you have to go right now? I do. Yeah, I gotta I go too. You have to go too. Okay, I thought maybe we could do a little bit more because we. Did. Okay, I'll do a little bit more. I'll do a little no, bit more because you know we need stuff for serious because I think that conversation with Eric may not be suitable for serious. Lingon, right. right. thank okay. you guys so much. I'll, thank uh, you, Lingon. Lingon, so what have you been doing all this time? Well, he has to go. Just meditating. 
just meditating. Uh, That's about it. But say where we can find you. Uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram at Um And yeah, if anybody wants to steal my sketches, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. I would say to SNL, I mean, you can have my whole act for a million. You know, Ted's asking for a million. I will give the whole lock, stock, and barrel. I'll give, I'll give SNL everything for, for a cool million. That's so what it. else do you want to talk about today, Daniel? They can have my, then they can have my sketches. They can have my book. I'll oh, yeah. How come I didn't get to read your book? Uh, you, a, you didn't ask to read it. And I don't send it to people unless they didn't ask. Well, Bernie, I sent it to him because Bernie read Perry L's book. And I figured, well, if he read Bernie Perry got Dan's book? What the yeah, fuck? I corrected it. He, you didn't ask to read it, number one. Number two, I'm, I, I don't think I didn't you want to ask. I, I don't think you'll read it. That's, and it'll be awkward because. How long is it? It's about 90,000 words, so I don't know how many pages that is. Well, if you read his book before you read my book, I'm going to be really pissed. And secondly, you, historically, you've underappreciated my work. And so <laughs> I, I feel as though if you don't like it, the risk is too high, you won't like it. In other words, if you like it, great. Wonderful. I mean, we all feel great. And I feel self-esteem. And, and, you know, and that's wonderful. But if you don't like it, it's going to be awkward. And, and I just... You don't want me to read it. Just say it. Don't, don't put it on I me. You don't want me to read is, it. The risk is too high. And I don't think you'll read it anyway. You don't read it. I'll, I'll read it. You, don't read you my, haven't read mine. You don't read my, I never promised to read yours. They've been sitting there for fucking years at this point collecting dust. I read, I've read bits and pieces of yours. Oh, bits and pieces? Periel, I'm more interested in Dan's book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if, if, you, if you email me a request. I just got to say it. <laughs> if you email me a request, I'll send it. You have to email me a request, and you have to promise to read it within a month under penalty of, <laughs> of me harassing you. Oh, it feels so good to tell the truth. <laughs> you know, I was going to say this before. Uh, it's a deal, turning, Dan. It's a deal. You're turning more and more into Larry David. <laughs> Well, and by the way, Dan, if you send me a PDF, I can, I can um, email the PDF. You know, for those of you who have Kindles, you may not know this, you can send a PDF to your Kindle via email, and then you can read a PDF on your Kindle. So yeah. I'll read it on my Kindle. Is there a scenario here in which I'm not supposed to be offended or take this personally? Nope. I don't see how that would be. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. Dan, Dan, you wrote a memoir about your life, and I've heard a lot of the stories. I wrote, I wrote two memoirs, actually, two. Okay. And, and well, I'm definitely not going to read both of them. And, <laughs> and, 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 I, did, and I did read a, a lot of them, and it was pretty good. But then Bernie read it, and, and Bernie told me all about it, and whatever it is. But Dan, Dan has written a novel, to my understanding, a novel that has the plots and characters. This is a higher level of, of accomplishment here, Perriel. Oh, really? And, That's and really fucking interesting. Is that right? Well, yes. Okay. You don't, th you don't think of writing a, a, a novel is a, higher, is, more, is a higher level of difficulty than a memoir? Well, in I, I could write a memoir. I could never write a novel. Well, why don't you go ahead and write one before you sit there talking about what you can do and can't do? I'm not saying there's a difference between writing a, a, a commercial jingle and a symphony, okay? Dan has written a symphony. Well, but it's not necessarily a good symphony. Whatever. It's, you still wrote a symphony. I, uh, I, will, don't... I will say this. It's not a memoir, but it does use aspects of my life. In fact, there's a character named Brian Rezac in the novel, 
and he is based on a man named Noam Dorman. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> is this why I'm not allowed to read it? No, he's 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 actually presented quite favorably in the novel. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, now I really want to read it. You don't have me in your fucking book, Perriel. I want to tell you something. <laughs> a memoir, in order to be published by a major publishing house, of which both of mine were, um, is really a novel that's been, you know, thinly veiled because in order for it to get through legal, you really have to change it so much that it is a form of fiction. So I don't really, I mean, we're not talking about fucking Dostoevsky here. So, so no, this claim of yours. Wait, hold, hold on, start over, Pearl. I tuned out for a minute. What were you saying? Shut up. I'm serious. <laughs> no, this claim that a novel is like so much more difficult to write than a memoir. No, I don't think that that's true. Uh, here's, the, here's the truth. Well, I, do, good, I do think it's good, true. A good memoir is harder to write than a bad novel. Maybe. I would imagine. But I'm just saying the following. Uh, I am. I, I. I do want to read your book. It's hard to get me to read anything. It's the truth. No, it's not. You read tomes. You sit there all day long. All you do I'm, is read. I'm reading Confederacy of Dunces now, and and so I. But I have read more of your book than you might realize. And Dan's. But Dan's. Dan. I'm fascinated that Dan was able to write a novel. Writing a novel, to me, just coming up with the plot the problem the resolution of that uh that's that to me is a very interesting to me and i'm, I'm quite curious to see dan how dan's talent dan, he, dan is supremely talented well that, we don't know that we're talking about though uh, but I, it's curious to me that you don't think you need to do that when you're writing a memoir i i don't i don't i could be what do i know about memoirs i don't think apparently you, nothing I mean, yeah, you have to. You have to be a good storyteller. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you that. Well, you. One can write a memoir and say, "And I walked into the room, and I sat down on the couch." Or one could say, "I." One could use figurative and floral language, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and and. That's and not no. I mean, you have to tell a story. It's a story, and um, you know, to, everything's fiction. Like it's not. You're like, right. You're right. You're right. Sorry. Can you say that again? My mic went cut out. I'm what? Your mic exploded. You you are you are right in that sense. Okay, you are right. Thank you. We can we as far as I'm concerned, we can end the show now. But no. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 Noam is partially conceding defeat. Partially, partially, he's just trying to um, placate you. He he does remember believe. Remember that. I, remember that I'm trying to help you um, bring this baby into the world. No, I mean, listen. There's a lot of there's a lot of women who spend a lot of time whoring around who couldn't write a good memoir about it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. Just, just because just because you spent ten years as a slut doesn't mean you have the talent to write a good memoir. Right. But Periel, Periel, Periel happened to be able to do both. But Dan is a good sense to do so. I <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I would say husband, her husband hasn't read it either. I would say this, and I I said it already. I'd say a a good memoir is harder to write than a bad novel. A memoir and a novel of equal standing, I would say you got to give it to the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be my, that would be my inkling, you know. It, whatever it is, memoirs don't get the respect that novels get, that's for sure. Maybe, maybe they should, but they don't. 
From from what? From from what? What do you? What well, is like you know, you know, Ulysses, uh, Shakespeare. I mean, these people wrote wrote um, works of fiction that they didn't write. Who who's the most famous memoirist? Erica Zhang is that a memoir? Fear of Flying? Oh, I think that was a novel, but it was. Oh. I mean, it might, it might have been memoir esque. A lot of I, novels. Yeah, they call it Building Roman. Is 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 a novel based mine, on mine? Mine has been referred to as a Building Stroman, actually. So there you fucking have it. I don't know. Is, and then and then what's the difference between an autobiography and a memoir? Well, I think an autobiography is is much closer to what you're talking about, frankly. I mean, this has nothing to do with me. I know my books are awesome. Um, but I think that a memoir is much closer to, you know, f fiction or, or, or a novel than an autobiography is. I mean, an autobiography, you're just like telling facts. Um, I think an autobiography is more like, you know, starts off when you, when you were born. I mean, it, it's, it's, it tends to be more chronological. It tends to be um, just more. Here's what happened. A memoir is more filtered through experience. The memoir also, I think, is is um, there's more growth. There's more. I mean, it's a, you're it's telling a, a story that has yeah, a narrative arc. Narrative arc, yeah. So you take part of your life and and that has a narrative arc, and you tell that rather than just saying I was born in a log cabin in 1808. You know, and so for you people at home, Periel has two of them. One is uh, called The Only Bush I Trust is My Own, and the other is called On My Knees. It's true. Now, you can, they're, avail they're available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> Which is nowhere anymore. Well, they're available where everything else is available, where, you, where your kitchen table and your TV are available, Amazon. That's right. And to clarify one thing, my husband did read the first one because I told him I wouldn't marry him if he didn't. And the second one came out, um, we were already married and he has not read that one. And he's given me every excuse under the sun as to why not. You know, Amazon kind of reminds me of this, this, this immigration thing because everybody hates Amazon, right? They hate Amazon. Want to get rid of Amazon. Yet we all love the benefit of Amazon, right? Like we all just curl up and are comforted by everything we get from Amazon. And that's kind of, they're, it's kind of like immigrants. We, everybody's bashing immigrants and, then, and, and, and they love immigrants. Anyway. I guess there's, an anal there's an analogy to be made. I don't bash Amazon, but I mean, it is, it, it, look, it's a, obviously when a small businessman goes out of business because he can't compete with Amazon, it's sad when somebody yeah. loses their dream, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and it, it makes it makes the world a bit less flavorful when you don't have local shops. Yeah. So so you know a lot less flavorful. I would say. Double-edged sword, obviously. Yeah, but we we we, we, but, but the, the, we made our decision as a as a people. We made our decision we, as a society. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I I think that part. Of, I don't know if we've made our decision as a society. I think it's really difficult to compete with. We made our decision in the sense that we we'd like the shops to exist, but we're not going to go shopping. We're not going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> we like they they look pretty in the window. And no, pretty. no, no. That's listen. No, I've heard you say this so many times about how when your father started or opened the olive tree or the comedy cellar. He, he was a taxi That's before, but yeah, before the comedy, yeah, but go ahead. And he managed to save up money and work as an immigrant and open this establishment 
And you said, that's unthinkable today. You said right, but no you, think of, you think of Amazon putting people out of business, bookstores and stuff like that. Even big bookstores like Barnes and Noble. It's not just, it's not just the, the little shops that are- Sure, but, but it's, is it, isn't it also um, nearly impossible to open something up with that kind of competition in terms of pricing and shipping and- Yeah, but, but I, think that you're, I think you're mixing, um, to some extent, mixing up two phenomena. I think that yes, there are there are big there are big barriers to entry to, to opening anything, but I think that the actual demand side, the demand side of buying books and such, or almost anything that you could just that's that is a generic item that in other words, every store sells the exact same item and you can just have it delivered to your home. Um you, right. it just people just have no interest as opposed to uh, restaurants where the demand is every there's this huge demand to go to restaurants, but because of all these issues that we've discussed in the past, uh, only big corporations or, or more and more big corporations have a tremendous example, a tremendous advantage over the little guy in terms of running a restaurant. But the Amazon has not the number of people who still want to go eat in restaurants is still a robust and healthy number out there. So it's not quite the same. There's no more demand to buy books in bookstores. I don't want to go buy a book in a bookstore. I Maybe do. Christmas time is nice to shop. I oh. love going into bookstores. Yeah. But, 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 but to that point, it's like, I don't want to wait 10 days for shipping. You don't, it's overnight. And overnight as well. No, but I'm well, you saying- can get, You can get Kindle and you could have it within two seconds. I don't want yeah. Kindle, I like books. But no, 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 I'm saying that I do like shopping in independent bookstores very much. But if I order something online, I'm, I'm agreeing that like it, it, I'm torn because I don't want to wait 10 days for a book to get here when I can order it in two for free. That's right. So it's, it's complicated. Look, things change. I've no, I've no doubt that people were driving in cars at one point saying, you know, this is very convenient, but I miss the open air and the horse and the sound of the trotting. And it's like, yeah, yeah there, there is, and I'm, being, I'm kidding, but it's real. There, there is a, a loss when you move to a new reality and some of that loss is real, but on the whole, we've made our decision that the convenience is more important to us than the charm of being able to shop. Yeah, there, there's even, there was even a loss, I think, when we moved from only being able to see a TV show when it was airing to being able to see any show that you've ever wanted to see, ever. I do think, there, and, and, and music too, but it's like, I told you we were driving that one time and a song came on the radio. I said, you know, it's a lot better when it comes on the radio than when you just say, let's listen to this song. Yeah. And I think it is, I think. You compared it to masturbating. I don't know if I compared it to masturbating. Yeah, you said it's, it's the same thing as getting a hand job or masturbating yourself. Some, for some reason, it's better when someone else does it. That's, what you, said. That's what you said. No, Maybe that was my joke then, but. I, <laughs> but, but, but the point is you always, I mean, I'm just agreeing with no. You, you always lose something when a new technology comes along, you know, and the, the, an airplane's not quite as charming as the train in certain ways, I guess. Sleeper cars were very Sleeper charming, car, you know. So. And, I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse, and I didn't feel like chiming in while you guys were talking to Professor Kaufman, but I don't understand what the issue is here. Like, people have decided that they don't want Im immigrants to come in, and they want to keep America, like, white. Like, I don't, I don't get, like, what, what, what culture 
are we pushing up against here? What's the fucking problem? Let, let's not get sucked back into it. Just suffice it to say that we had an election uh, <laughs> where we elected this guy named Donald Trump and he ran on an anti-immigration uh, uh, platform and it, it, he won. So, so there, there's an issue out there. I'll, I'll, send you some, I'll send you some articles and then uh, you can catch up. <laughs> <laughs> I think Periel's question. And this is, is a good time to recommend Periel's memoir. I'm sure. I'm sure it's quite challenging. But Periel, I think, wants to. Her question is, uh, her <laughs> issue is, is why do people feel that way? And she doesn't think it's logical or rational. All right, I have to thank, go. Thank you, Dan. I have to go. So, uh, podcast at comedycelly.com for comments, questions, suggestions. Uh, find Periel's books. Oh, we we got an email from. So I, I I have to read it to my uh, inbox from someone who had a comment on this younger. Oh yeah, that was really good. Yeah, maybe we sh I have to read it, but maybe we should invite her on the show or something. Okay, I have to go. Bye. See you next time. Bye, everybody.